Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast, and welcome to season two. I am so excited to be back. I have to say, of all the things I do, hosting this podcast is my favorite. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening and for being here. We are kicking things off today with just an incredible conversation. I speak with Liz Carlisle, an associate professor in the Environmental Studies Program at UC Santa Barbara and the author of Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. She's also the author of two other books about regenerative farming and agroecology. Liz shares how she became interested in farming and food studies, which is such a fascinating story. And she shares how she became passionate about regenerative farming, which she defines as, quote, a way of growing food that gives back to land and community rather than just extracting from land and community. She discusses how soil is such an important part of this exchange and how soil directly relates to climate change. Liz also describes how our current agricultural industry has been built on structures of colonialism and racism and how these structures not only persist today, but also contribute to the current climate crisis. This is such an important conversation. I think that you're going to learn a lot, but I also think that you're going to leave feeling so empowered. Liz shares real ways that we can begin to shift the current paradigm of food production and how it can start at our own tables. As always, if this work resonates with you, an easy way that you can support it is by leaving a comment, rating the podcast on your podcast app, sharing it with friends, or signing up for the Mind, Body, Spirit, Food newsletter if you're not yet subscribed. And thank you to the paid members who make all of this work possible. All right, my friends, let's dive in. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to be here, Nikki. I am so thrilled that you're here. I devoured your book in a weekend. You know, there are some books that just expand. I felt like it just expanded my little narrow perception of what I thought I knew. And so thank you for that. And I'm talking about your book, Healing Grounds. I know you have a few. I'm so glad for that because that was my experience in writing it as well. Mm -hmm. And actually in continuing to do conversations with folks in the book, it just continues to expand my perspective on the food system. And yeah, it's been such a gift, really. So glad you're part of it. (laughs) Well, thank you for it. We're going to get into the book in just a few minutes, but I'm going to start by asking you the first question that I ask all of my podcast guests. And this is so we can get to know you a little bit. What is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? Well, I was born in Missoula, Montana in the 80s, and identity-wise, I come from a white settler background. Both of my parents come from European-American heritages, and food wasn't like a huge deal in our house growing up. There weren't any particular cultural foods that we had really strong attachments to. My mom would make chicken pot pie sometimes with my brother really loved, which was a thing in her family, but (laughs) more so than that, honestly, the thing that was was a big deal culturally in my family around food 
was just the fact that we gathered every evening for a meal mm. together. And at the time, you know, I didn't think that was anything profound. If you'd asked me when I was like eight or 14, like, what are the important things in your lives? I would have talked about like playing the drums and playing basketball. (laughs) (laughs) It was just this thing that I kind of took for granted. But every day, you know, we would gather and we would talk about what happened during the day. And if anything hard had happened during the day, there was kind of this chance to air that. Mm. And so now that, you know, I have my own family and my own kind of practices with my friends, this is something that I realize is actually something I really value is just Mm. gathering for meals regularly with the people that I love. That is a really profound thing. And I want everybody to have that privilege. And I realize now what a privilege it was to have that growing up. It is. It is. Similarly to you growing up, we would gather on Sundays. We would always have a Sunday night dinner, which even in my family now we make a big deal night of Sunday night dinner, but we eat together every night, my family, Mm. my girls Mm. and my husband and I. And it's such a privilege to be able to do so. And it's something I am grateful for every time we sit down. So I Mm. love that you really feel that as well. And that's one of your values. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I would say also, we didn't do a ton of gardening and we were a generation removed from agriculture. My grandmother lost a family farm in the Dust Bowl. I did Mm. get to talk with her a lot about it. She was a huge influence. But we had a little bit of space and my dad really loved to grow sugar snap peas. And so that was a big experience. I do remember that as a little kid, picking that first snap pea. Mm -hmm. And that was my first experience of like picking something really fresh and how different that tasted. And also just that sense of connection and pride is like, we grew this and now we're eating it. Yeah. (laughs) We were just having a conversation last night with my daughters because they've always grown up with a garden. We have a very small garden, but my husband's, I got to give him full credit. He does it all. (laughs) But they've always been able to pick food from the ground and eat it. And we were Mm. explaining how neither of us grew up with food gardens. Mm. And they were like, wait, what? (laughs) I was like, wow, you guys are going to have a whole different worldview than I did. And I never really realized what an impact it will have on them because it's just so normal for them, which is Mm, totally cool. Yeah. Yeah, And my parents did this really cool thing, too, is, you know, we didn't have a ton of space, but they would take us to this little nursery with them when kind of the growing season was starting. I guess in Montana, that was probably like May, maybe. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And they would let us each choose a flower that we liked. It would be like in a little, those kind of containers, there would be like six of them, six of those little cells with like a little flower. And so that was cool too. Mm. And I think for me, that planted a seed of like how important agency is in being able to choose, you know, what you want to plant. I had this like phase of really liking dark purple. Mm. And I just remember that as like, I get to choose these dark purple flowers (laughs) that I'm going to look at every day. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What an important little nugget that is. Agency. Well, how, if you could just give us, I know there's a a long time, not a long time span, you're quite young, but somewhat of a time span between your childhood and where you're at today. If you could just give us a little recap of what you do and, and how this passion was fueled for you. Yeah, so my grandmother was huge, actually. I I really admired her wisdom and groundedness. And it seemed to me that a lot of that came from her land connection. Mm. You know, having grown up on this family farm in western Nebraska and running around on the prairie and, like, helping out with the animals. And I always wanted that. I wanted to be that kind of woman that she was. And I wasn't sure what reconnecting 
with that way of life might look like, but I was kind of hungry for that. And she was also really honest with me about the tragedy of the Dust Bowl Mm. and that, you know, her family was partly responsible, that they were among the many, many people on that landscape that were mismanaging the land because they got bad advice from, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and really didn't know how to care for that land. It was kind of tragic as like she came to love that land. She wanted to be in community, I think, with that land, but she she didn't have the tools and her family didn't have the tools. And so I think over my life, I've wanted to understand a lot more about that is like, mm-hmm. what did go wrong, you know, in this homestead era and the, you know, settling of this country? Yeah. What is my family's role in that? And how do we move towards healing? Wow. So I was always really interested to talk to other people with land-based livelihoods. I did a degree in folklore. I was a country singer. Wow. Very interested in these kinds of like rural narratives. And then ultimately, you know, started hearing people talk a lot about, yeah, we do want to steward the land, but there's massive barriers in terms of how the agricultural economy is structured Mm -hmm. and what policy is like driving everybody toward. And then when I was in my early 20s, this organic farmer from my home state of Montana, John Tester, got elected to the U.S. Senate in this like squeaky, like, man, he just won by a couple thousand votes. It was a huge upset of a three-term incumbent talking about how organic agriculture had saved his family farm from the bankruptcies that like took out so many family farms in the 80s and how we needed a renewable economy, not an extractive economy. Mm. You know, that this history of mining and fossil fuels and extractive agriculture was not what our state needed. We needed renewable energy and organic agriculture. And I was like, yes, this is totally what I've been hearing, you know, from people all over rural America that they need this kind of shift. And this Mm. sounds like a policy vision for it. So I made this big change in my career when I was 24 from being a country singer to working, (laughs) you know, an entry-level policy job in Senator Tester's office. And I had kind of seen this as like the story of an individual family changing their farming approach. But working in the office, I came to quickly realize that this was a whole movement of Mm. farmers who had learned how to rotate more diverse crops and take better care of the soil and build their own more direct market so they could get paid for this kind of quality and land stewardship. And so long story short, that inspired me to go to grad school and do, you know, Mm -hmm. participatory research with this community of farmers in Montana. And that just led me into this broader community of people all over the country who are trying to think about a transition Mm. to more organic, regenerative, agroecological food system. Fascinating. So I want to start at the beginning because I think a lot of us have this idea of what soil is. But in reading your book, I realized that soil is much bigger. It's much more interesting (laughs) than I ever (laughs) imagined it could be. Can you delve into a little bit of what is soil? Yeah, I think it's fair to say there's a lot more going down there underground than most (laughs) of us think about on a daily basis. And certainly, you know, I spent most of my life just thinking of soil as like the semi-inert medium that you use to put a plant in, you know. And I think it's hard because as humans, we live our lives above ground. And so we don't see a lot of that action that's happening underground. Mm. So I find it helpful to actually think about you know, walking through a rainforest and imagining what that's like, this, you know, teeming community of life, big organisms, small organisms, all linked up in this food web. 
And it's actually similar underground. There's a billion bacteria in just a gram of soil. Wow. There's all of these long fungal hyphae that are extended onto plant roots, helping them gather nutrients through the soil. And there's actually a lot of space down there when soil is healthy, these big pores Mm. of air and water. And so you can just imagine like this teeming community of life, you know, just living out their lives down there with this kind of raucous exchange of nutrients and water. Wow. And what I didn't quite realize was how important soil is to the collection of carbon. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, totally. I mean, soil is so key in balancing our planet and making it habitable for us as people and lots of other organisms, too. So it has this really key role in cycling nutrients. And two that we care about a lot from a climate perspective are carbon and nitrogen. And they're key building blocks of life for plants, for animals. Of course, we have a lot of this in our body, but we don't want too much of either of these things in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's what we've got right Mm -hmm. now. And it has a lot to do with having dug up stuff that used to be underground. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you know, fossil fuels, burning fossil fuels, but also industrial agriculture over the past, you know, couple hundred years has involved a lot of intensive plowing and then not really replacing the diverse vegetation communities that used to be covering that soil and keeping those nutrients in balance underground. So we've had a lot of this carbon and nitrogen lost to the atmosphere. And that's Mm -hmm. actually part of why we have a climate change problem. That's part Mm. of the greenhouse gas emission story, historically and also ongoing. Those industrial practices on an ongoing basis are leading to carbon dioxide emissions and nitrous oxide emissions. But the silver lining is that because this is part of the problem, we can also change our agricultural management and start to put some of that carbon back underground and at least stop losing so much of these nutrients to the atmosphere every time we're growing food. Yeah. Your focus on healing grounds is on regenerative farming. Can you define that for us? I like to define regenerative farming as a way of growing food that gives back to land and community rather than just extracting from land and community. And soil is a big part of that. So methods of farming, and we could talk about, you know, compost or mulch is something folks might have experienced in a community garden or a backyard garden, but also things like cover crops where you grow a crop just for feeding the soil in the off season, Mm. or even something like building the design of the farm around having more perennial plants that keep roots in the ground all year round, giving back carbon to the soil. Because that's what plant roots do. The plant is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and the roots Mm. keep feeding it underground to these microbes that help them scavenge nutrients. So it's all these different kinds of methods and it depends on the place and it depends on the farming system. But it's really about a way of growing food that's continuously giving back rather than just trying to kind of take as much as you can from the landscape in a short period of time to make money. I love that. Now, this is where your book really started to open my eyes. You talk about the connection between racism and the industrial food system, really. How are these things all intertwined? You know, regenerative agriculture is a term. I think a lot of people encounter it as kind of this sort of like new buzzword of like, oh, these like novel, innovative ideas. The Rodale Institute started using it a little bit in the 80s, but it's kind of new in the lingo. Mm -hmm. And so I think it can sometimes give the impression that these are a set of new ideas 
that are maybe thought of by scientists or sort of like tech people or maybe a few like really smart, interesting renegade farmers out there in (laughs) North Dakota or Iowa somewhere. But the truth is that these practices have existed for thousands of years on every continent and have been absolutely key to indigenous food systems. It's the way people sustain themselves generation after generation before anybody had access to fossil fuels mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of fake it mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of synthetic nitrogen and, you know, the ways that, you know, food has grown in industrial food systems now. And so the only reason that we don't see these kinds of indigenous regenerative food systems in the way that we might imagine they could otherwise have continued is the disruption of colonization and empire. So indigenous folks being booted off their land, folks from Africa, you know, being kidnapped from their land and being forced Mm -hmm. to labor in this plantation system and the beginnings of industrial agriculture in the U.S. And then, you know, even after emancipation, you know, sharecropping and Jim Crow really continued this oppression of black people and their relationship to land in the U.S. And also the labor model in agriculture, unfortunately, did not change a whole lot. And so with this kind of colonial and imperial expansion around the world, People often were forced off of their land because of violence or because of economic reasons and ended up coming and laboring in U.S. agriculture under similarly oppressive conditions Mm -hmm. that really limited them from, you know, the ways that they could continue to practice these forms of regeneration. So the awesome thing is that people have struggled so hard to maintain these traditions and have used them actually as tools of survival and resistance. But that's the bottleneck is like how Mm. far down the road (laughs) of equity and decolonization are we ready to move? Because when we do that, all of these forms of regeneration that exist in these indigenous communities and communities of color are totally ready, you know, to scale out. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit Food Newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. You mentioned something, this term agrarian mythology, which I had to sit with for a little while because we all have it. We've got this idea of the white settlers coming and having their little small plots of land. And this is not obviously being taken into consideration the indigenous farmers that were here for (laughs) centuries before. But that's kind of like this mythology that we all carry about this country, about these small farmers who plotted, you know, and really when you look on a large scale, Industrial agriculture as it is today is nowhere near that model of small farms. It's very hierarchical, really. 
Yeah, there's so much that's missing, I think, from that imaginary of like the story of U.S. agriculture. You know, one being that there was a vibrant food system on this continent, you know, prior to Europeans arriving. And unfortunately, most Europeans couldn't see it. And it was partly because, you know, the folks who were kind of on the front lines of colonization, they didn't want to see it. Yeah, sure. (laughs) They were in the military Mm. or, you know, like land grabbing. But then, you know, I think about like my own family who were settlers who kind of followed after that violence, their history was in a very different environment. Europe is a very different place, you know, much rainier. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so this like arid prairie landscape that makes up a really significant part of this continent and the way that people were managing a prairie food system that was renewable was just really difficult, I think, for those folks to see and understand, or the way California was being managed as a food system. M. Cat Anderson wrote this beautiful book called Tending the Wild. Another indigenous scholar, Gerald Clark, writes about it like all of California was one big farm. You know, it was like landscape scale management of an environment that looked wild to European people. And they couldn't see that like Yosemite mm. was actually like a massive tended garden, you know, wow. and that it didn't make sense in this landscape for people to like plow it up and have small farms, you know. So there was a food system here. And then, yeah, as you say, there was a moment in U.S. history when there were a lot of small family farmers. But even from the very beginning of the Homestead Act, there was all this speculation and people like grabbing up multiple homesteads and then Mm. selling them off to somebody for some extractive purpose. And then the industry has experienced so much consolidation in recent decades that even if the farms are small, first of all, it's really hard to make a living if your farm is small. You probably have to like rent multiple parcels and farm them all. Mm. But the consolidation in the industry is in the middle, you know, like meatpacking. Four corporations have a massive market share. Grain processing, same thing, retail, seeds. And so it is this like... It's these multinational corporations that are making money from our food system, and it is definitely not this kind of like small farmer paradise that maybe folks imagine or hope is what's happening in U.S. agriculture. It's truly an industry, like you say. How do we begin to change that paradigm? Well, I have to say a lot of folks already are in their own Mm. communities. So, you know, I've been doing this work for about 12 years as a writer and a researcher, and I'm never going to run out of really hopeful, inspiring, informative stories to tell about local and regional efforts, whether you're talking about people doing really cool things on their own farm or, you know, cooperative grocery stores that support these small regenerative farmers or amazing food hubs or like farm to school programs Mm -hmm. where kids are getting healthy food and also they're supporting these, you know, local regenerative farmers. So there's tons of people that are already like figuring out how to build local food sovereignty. But because the problem is structural in nature, in order to sort of solve it at scale, we need to like really band together and work towards structural, you know, solutions. And so the good news is this is farm bill reauthorization season. So every five years we get a chance Mm -hmm. to overhaul the major package of federal legislation that 
radically shapes, you know, what our food system looks like. So we currently use a lot of public money to subsidize industrial monocultures. And I would argue that we don't use enough of our public money to support the public goods that come out of people who are doing regenerative agriculture Mm. and are taking care of our watersheds and our atmosphere and our soil resource. So there's a campaign called the Transformative Farm Bill Campaign. There are hundreds of organizations involved in it all over the country, from a major professional organization supporting dietitians to one of the largest labor unions in the country that supports food workers, lots of environmental organizations and agriculture organizations. But Transformative Farm Bill Campaign, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition has a bunch of material up on their website. And I think if we really want to see a change in the incentive system so that the people doing the right thing aren't always having to hustle so hard and, like, Mm. self-exploit, that's what we need to do is we need to change policy at all levels, including the federal level. This is such important work. I feel like this makes it tangible for all of us who are not, you know, well, actually, let's go there. Mm we all do need to feed ourselves Mm, (laughs) on an mm, individual mm. basis. How can we as eaters, as, you know, people who perhaps don't have farms, how can we play a role in tending to this issue or at least tending to the earth in general? I think this is really important. And even from this kind of structural and political lens, if you're going to engage in this really ambitious struggle that's going to take generations to accomplish, to really change the world in a dramatic way, I think it's important to be able to taste a little bit of that beautiful future that you're fighting for and have a little bit of it now, you know, with your friends and create a really vivid picture of like, this is the world we want. There's just beautiful writing about this in the Black feminist tradition, a lot of great speculative fiction. There's this term world making about Mm. this practice. (laughs) All of these things, yeah, have been really inspiring to me. And I think that making a meal with other people that you love, especially, or tending a garden, whether that's a community garden or in your backyard, can be such a powerful practice of world making or another term that social scientists use is prefigurative practice, mm. meaning like you are prefiguring, you're you're preforming the world that mm. you are helping to bring into being. And I think what's so amazing about food is we experience it with all of our senses. Mm -hmm. It's really embodied. It is this like full-on immersion in this world that you're making of beauty and care and sharing. Like these are all the things I feel when I'm sharing a meal with other people. And so I think it's so important to just experience what that's like to be in reciprocal relationship with land and with other people and for it to be joyful and for good things to just continue to flow in a circle and Mm. feel that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like I am tending to the land and it also makes me feel good. Yes. (laughs) You know, like this isn't like a winner and a loser in this interaction. This is actually like really mutually beneficial and you know, what we were evolved to be. We were really evolved to be in community with each other as people, but also with the rest of the world. So I think it's just so important to give yourself that joy and to experience that. 
And we could talk a lot about, you know, like what foods and what plants, <laughs> you know, grow a cover crop in your garden and all of that is good. But I think even just at that fundamental level, just experiencing yeah. that connection is huge. Well, this is so beautiful because this is exactly my mission in a different lens, but it's the same end result. And it is to find embodiment and connection through food and mm. to really find sovereignty as bodies mm. and sovereignty as eaters, because mm. we are so conditioned around food in this country and in many countries. And one thing you said that I love is creating this reciprocal relationship with food. Braiding Sweetgrass is one of my favorite books. I know you quoted in your book as well. And that book really talks a lot about reciprocity. And mm. reciprocity is a win-win because it mm. feels good when we maintain and create these connections. It doesn't feel good when we take it all for ourselves. <laughs> and of course, this is the way that indigenous cultures approached agriculture, or at least I would assume most. There's something about that connection and strengthening those connections that I love. I absolutely love. 100%. Yeah. Can't recommend braiding sweetgrass highly enough. I know. I just read it for the seventh time oh. on audiobook. <laughs> Books like that. I love that. You just can revisit and revisit. One thing that you note in your book, which you kind of just talked about here, and this is another thing that I share a lot in my own work, is the ritual of feeding ourselves. I do think that feeding ourselves can be a sacred act. And when we mm -hmm. make it into a ritual, we derive more pleasure out of the experience and more joy, or at least maybe more presence or serenity. How does this look in your own life, the ritual of feeding yourself? Yeah. You know, you sent me this question ahead of time. And then I was thinking about, you know, what kind of cultural experiences around food did I have as a kid? And I realized that it was really my parents that introduced me to a ritual around food because that's what happened every evening. It was ritual. It was consistent. It was a space away from whatever it was that we needed to do, you know, to like pay the bills or what I had to do at school. It was this space away from all of that that was sacred. It was like, no matter what was going on, we always took that time, <laughs> you know. It had to be a pretty big deal to skip a meal. And so that's something I have continued. And again, I feel like it's a tremendous privilege and something that really supports my well-being is just to take that space for my meals every day, even if it's just a little bit of time, but just a little bit of time away from, you know, whatever, the to-do list, the care work, yeah, <laughs> and just experience that embodiment and that connection and that gratitude, just an awareness of like, you know, these lives of these plants and animals are coming into my body. Yeah. You know, what a miracle. What a miracle. <laughs> I talk a lot about a gratitude practice because gratitude is so easy and yet it's scientifically proven to have such benefits. And when we mm. can sit in that place of gratitude, we can see abundance where perhaps we could not have perceived it before. For me to sit in gratitude with the food I eat, but to sit in gratitude with the people at my table and to sit in gratitude for my own body, that's everything then I feel like I'm able to say something worthwhile. <laughs> mm, <laughs> if you know yes. what I mean, like yes. if I come from that place, if I yes. don't come from this striving place or this scarcity mindset, which I've certainly had and I think we've all experienced. 
Yeah. And I think also for me, like the joy and the pleasure of it is big. Like mm. I actually really just love eating and I mm-hmm. pretty much always have. And that's mm-hmm. it's probably not an accident that I'm in this career. And every time <laughs> you go to a conference, like the food is really good and everybody else really loves food. <laughs> we met through a mutual friend of ours because I went to the geography program at Berkeley. And, you know, people were doing such cool, diverse things, looking at social and ecological challenges around the world. And I had so many awesome, you know, conversations with people about social and political issues. But I always felt kind of lucky that I was like the person that worked on food. (laughs) And when I went to professional stuff, like there was that shared love of food, you know. And so I think the joy and the pleasure is really big for me. And I will take that extra time or like just that extra minute to like make each of my meals really joyful and pleasurable Mm -hmm. for myself rather than just like, oh, I got to eat something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is just amazing because, again, a lot of it is about perception and about taking that time for ourselves consciously. But I love how this ties back to when we do this for ourselves, we're doing it for a bigger cause, too. This Mm -hmm. is not just when I take the time to thank my food. I can then thank the farmer who perhaps picked it. I can then connect to the earth where that food grows and it becomes this web of connection. And so we do these things Mm. for our pleasure. We do these things for our own, you know, maybe mindfulness practices, but we also, the outcome of that is that there's a bigger story. There's a bigger web of connection that can start to change the world simply by being intentional about how we feed ourselves, which is such, what a fun place to change the world. Like you said, Mm, (laughs) not always fun when we get into the, you know, I'm sure when you get into the politics of it, it's not, but we can start in the kitchen. At least I believe so. Yeah. And I think I am really lucky in that, you know, like you, this is kind of my world. (laughs) Yeah. And so most of the time when I'm eating, there's a really deep story that I know about the person. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's my partner (laughs) who grew Mm -hmm. that food if it's vegetables. But I did a lot of my early work on lentils and grains. And so those things in my household come from people I know and lands that I know pretty intimately. And I know what a big lift it was for all of them collectively to, you know, like crowdfund the processing plant that makes it possible Mm. for me in California to eat those organic lentils from Montana. And the fact that crop makes it possible for them to have an organic rotation, whereas if it was just wheat, you know, there's not enough nitrogen. And so I think that, yeah, sense of connection to relationships that are connected Mm. to food makes it all the more kind of ritual and and nourishing. And I do think, you know, if you are a person with means, you can make a huge difference with your purchases, like joining community-supported agriculture or shopping at a, you know, local natural food store or co-op. You know, like I think about the Japanese women that were really bummed with the chemical transition of their agriculture after World War II Mm. and the kind of U.S. domination of the rebuilding of the Japanese economy. And they really came up with the community-supported agriculture model. And the way they did it is they just gathered a bunch of families, pooled some money, and hired a farmer and found a plot. And were like, you're going to be our farmer. Wow. And that reminds you that, like, you know, all of these beautiful alternative projects in the food system— they are supported by some 
you know, handful of families, basically, that makes this possible. And so I'm not a proponent of this as like the only mechanism of change in the food system, Mm -hmm. the kind of vote with your dollar, because we don't all have dollars to vote with. But I think if you do have dollars to vote with, you totally should. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of these are small businesses where, you know, a handful of really engaged eaters can make a big difference. So, Mm. yeah, I think more power to you if you want to think about the kind of food system you're supporting with, you know, food purchases or what you're choosing to eat. I love that. I think that empowers a lot of people listening. And like you said, if those dollars aren't there, there's a million other ways to do that, whether that's just tending to a, you know, a little thing of herbs in your windowsill or sharing a meal with others. So, Thank you. And I feel the wonderful thing about your book is, first of all, everyone should read it. She shares stories, real stories from Black, Indigenous, Latino, Asian families who are doing this work and they're doing such important work. And this is their heritage. This is the knowledge that they bring to the table. And it's something we can all learn from. So thank you for that. Where can people find you, your books, all of that good stuff? (laughs) Thank you for asking. I have a website. It's very simple. It's just my name, lizcarlisle.com. And would love to hear, you know, any reflections or your own stories, connections with food and land. That's always like one of the coolest things about the work that I do is hearing people share their own stories and what something sparked in reading another person's story. Well, I have one last question for you, and this is a fun one. Another question I ask all of my guests. It is your last meal on earth. What would it be? Wow. I think I might just go all dessert. Yay! For that. <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. It is so fun for me. <laughs> okay, tell me about these desserts that you're eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love pie. This is another family thing, but my brother makes amazing pumpkin and apple pie around the holidays. Pie is my favorite food, so I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Yes. So, and there's definitely times, like generally like the first meal, like around Thanksgiving, I will eat, you know, whatever, like a balanced meal. But there will be one of those leftover days when I'm like, I'm just eating pie. Like my brother's pies are so amazing. This is just a meal of all pie. So I think that would be how I would go out, just Mm. pie. You are a woman of my own heart. Pie is literally, I love all food, but pie, I have a whole class about pie making because I love it so much. So well done. It was, and it is like the quintessential shared food, too. It is. Yes. It's so (laughs) celebratory. And the making of pies, too, for me is very Mm. therapeutic and very meditative. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Liz. This conversation, the work you're doing, it's so important. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Nikki. And likewise, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. And by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore. And as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.